A big part of it, I think, in my book is a lack of curiosity. Just, I don't care. I don't care enough to dig in to learn what I need to know. And it's like, you can't teach somebody to care. It's kind of like, I can't teach you how to be a good person. I can't teach you to want to be a good person. You've got to go through being an awful person and how much that sucks before you realize maybe I should not be this awful person anymore. Right. So that that's kind of difficult. And one way that I see that question is through the lens of, again, learning, learning mentalism tricks and, and that kind of thing. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. Here's your host, Spencer Lowe. Welcome back to another episode of Lessons in Leverage. I'm very excited today to have Jonathan Pritchard with us. Jonathan is the founder of several consulting companies. He's a multiple-time author, world-traveling entertainer, and public speaker for high-stake businesses. His client list includes BP, Discover, State Farm, United Airlines, and more. And his journey took him from doing 19,000 performances at Universal Studios all the way through to appearing on America's Got Talent, entertaining United States troops in South Korea, and... That's a very interesting journey to dig into. So I'm very excited to be able to talk more about that journey. Now, his unique perspective of working with thousands of audiences has given him powerful insights into art and the science of communication, as well as influence, persuasion, high-stake negotiations, and really, you could think of him as a mind reader. Uh, and so it's, it's my first time getting to interview what people would call a mentalist. And so uh, I'm really excited. And I actually wanted to start there, Jonathan. For those who don't know, uh, I think people tend to mix kind of magic and mentalism. And so maybe you can help the audience just to understand right up front. I know you started as a young child with magic. And so what is the difference between those skill sets that it sounds like you you have both of? Yeah, well, thank you. That was a awesome intro. And I want to I want to meet that guy. He sounds Interesting. So yeah, the, the difference between a magician and a mentalist is they both have kind of the same house called mystery entertainment. And in a room over here are the magicians that are doing tricks with things like the linking rings and playing cards and floating people and all that kind of stuff. And then I think of it like if you're a professional magician, you've got a college degree in amazing people. And then when you want to get your PhD, you're now a mentalist, which is kind of like a magician who has specialized in mind reading tricks and demonstrations. So it's all applied psychology, showmanship, and moxie. And basically like you're doing tricks with information instead of tricks with things and objects. Yeah, that's such a great breakdown. And I've watched some different performances. I, I love magic. I love mentalism. And so that that's such a good way to think about it. And it also makes it really clear why you've gone on, I think, to be successful as an author, as a, you know, a consultant for, for these big businesses, because certainly uh, in, in my world uh, and, and in the business world, that's a skill set that's pretty valuable. So I can, I can see how that would translate and I'm excited to kind of get there. But first I wanna go back to the beginning of your story. I wanna talk a little bit about the first phase of what I imagine your life was like from different research I've done, which was kind of the performer phase, right? Coming up as a child, sounds like you got interested in art early uh, as well as, as magic. And so a lot of kids that are interested in art, like my wife loved, loved art. She's still a great artist, but it's not, you know, most households don't exactly say, oh, great. Yeah, go pursue art. Make that your career. Uh, that's going to be really lucrative for you. So 
I'm very curious to know kind of how you found magic uh, so early in your life and also what it was like in your household, the right environment to be supportive and to allow you to really pursue that. My parents deserve all the credit, all the praise. And the older I get, the more I appreciate them and how they helped all that happen. Because we were dirt poor, grew up in a trailer, in a trailer park in the mountains of North Carolina. My dad worked 14-hour days at a factory. My mom was a secretary. And we didn't have money, really. And when I was six years old, my dad bought a magic kit for Christmas. And he thought, well, this will probably wind up in the trash in a couple of hours. And then it's a year later, and it's the only thing I'm still playing with. And for some reason, that was that was the thing that hooked me. And I am intensely introverted. Like I'm pretty much maxed out on the introversion scale. I spent all my people points on I'd rather not be around people. <laughs> that's so that's that's it. And then doing magic tricks was a way for me to connect with people instead of having to talk with them. I could say this thing that I know I need to say. I could do this thing I know I need to do in order for them to be impressed. And then, oh, I I want more of that. So it was kind of my main way that I would socialize with people growing up. So all through oh. elementary school, high school, junior high, I was the guy that, that did magic tricks. So that, well, that clearly you're very high functioning socially. I think people that are very socially capable get viewed immediately as extroverts. It's kind of quickly assumed that happened to me my whole life. I actually did a lot of sales growing up and people said, oh yeah, you're natural for that. You're, you're such an extrovert. And I was like, no, it drains the hell out of me. I don't actually enjoy it, but I was good at speaking with people. I did have some communication skills. And so you can kind of conf conflate those two things. What I think is really interesting though, is what a great practical tactic that is for the audience to think about. If you're not someone who's naturally energized by going out and talking to people, you do kind of need a way. I mean, the world, business, everything you want to go accomplish relies on other people. And so having a way to bridge that, you know, for you having that be magic to bridge that social interaction is really valuable. For me, I know when I go to conferences or events, I just wear a shirt that says, my name is Spencer, ask me about this. And what's funny is I, a lot of people will ask you because they're trying to network and they're uncomfortable and they don't want, they don't know what to say. And so anything that just gets that barrier down so that you can connect with someone is a great tool. Certainly, I think it'd be even better if I could go to an event and, you know, pull out a magic trick. That's, that would probably get a crowd pretty quick, but that's awesome. So, so it started to fill that social need for you. And then as you, as you got older, did you spend a period of time where performing was really the focus of your career? Like where you thought, all right, I'm going to be just a pure performer. That's all I want to do. And what was that like? What was the sort of transitioning out of the childhood fascination into like, I'm going to build a career around this. That's a really good question to me because the professional side of it started when I was 13. So I got paid 200 bucks to do magic tricks at a company's summer employee appreciation picnic. So I'm a 13 year old kid walking around, make 200 bucks in an hour. And I'm going, wait a minute. That was too easy. That was a lot of fun. Doesn't work. Isn't that supposed to be hard and difficult? So that was when I became supremely unemployable. And when as a 13-year-old kid, right? Yeah. So my parents saw, holy cow, this 13-year-old kid of ours just got paid 200 bucks. He'll be all right. 
So there wasn't ever a, you need to get a real job. It was more, my dad as a factory worker, my mom as a secretary go, look, you could always get a factory job, but at least you'll have a chance to do something else if, if you want to. And look, you've already gotten paid for this. So go do that. So that was always my focus was I'm going to be a performer. That's it. So when I went to college, I got a degree in painting in art. And I always joked when people go, oh, painting, huh? Be like, yeah, that's my fallback plan in case the performing doesn't work out. Just to totally mess with people. And then when I graduate, yeah, I I was doing full-time performing where it was the show. I'm doing a 70-minute mind-reading show at colleges all over the country. and And that was the main focus of it. And there was a weird thing that happened, which was I held on to the I'm only a performer viewpoint for so long that I would do a show once, twice a month, get paid really well for it. But then I had a whole bunch of other time on my hands and I could have gotten other jobs that were paying me in my downtime. But instead, I would get paid for the show, live off that, but then it would be cutting it kind of close and I might have to borrow some money from a performer friend of mine to be able to afford to go to the show. So I was constantly getting paid a lot of money, then living too long on it, run out of money, and couldn't even afford to get to the next show. And that lasted for way too long. <laughs> I'd love to hear... Is this where that that model comes from? Or tell me more about that model and maybe how it applies to the journey from I'm just a performer and I'm in this sort of intermittent cash flow state into the next step, which I'm sure starts to expand your horizons and, and increase your results. Yeah, it's a fractal lesson hmm. because it all started within the context of the actual performance and then into that business, then into my life and which businesses I wanted to start. But it's all the same waterfall realization. Being a mind reader is intensely interesting. You don't get to meet too many people that are professional mind readers. So it's really easy for me to be interesting to people. So that informed how the show was designed which was look at how interesting Jonathan is show. And that's interesting to a certain degree, but once you kind of get it, you're like, well, that guy can do things that I can't. Okay, well, he's special. He was born with this neat. And the show was good. It was amazing, but it didn't really engender a lot of fans or emotional engagement. Because how emotionally engaged are you going to be with the guy who goes, I'm the most interesting person here? You're like, yeah, yeah, okay, Mr. I'm interesting. Sure you are, you blowhard, right? Like that's that's the to totally normal, reasonable reaction. So I was thinking through like, okay, how could I make the show more interesting? Well, it makes total sense that somebody that has spent their life working on these skills can do this thing on stage in front of people. Yeah, that makes sense. What if I put my skills to use making audience members the most interesting person in the room? What if I could make it look like the audience member was the one who read minds or predicted the future or anything I could do 
could I make a total stranger from the audience be the person that does it? So from a tech, like a technique standpoint, from a functional method standpoint, I'm doing exactly the same things. It's all happening because of what I'm doing, but the presentational angle is more of, yeah, yeah, you came to see something amazing. Look, I can read minds. Okay, we all get it. Now this is even weirder. What if you guys were doing the weird stuff? And that's even more fascinating. And from that point, when I focused on, I still need to check the box that this Jonathan guy is the mind reader we paid money to come see. We we want what we want, and I wanted to come see a mind reader. He fulfilled that expectation in the first five minutes. Okay, cool. And now I'm getting even more that I didn't even dream was possible was that guy was reading that guy's mind and this person's reading that person's mind and all that kind of stuff. So the show got much better. And then people were like, wait, so you're telling me I can do things if if I put my mind to it? I'm like, absolutely. You don't understand the systems that are at play, your non-conscious mind, your conscious mind, and how all those frameworks interact with each other. But if you understood those systems, then you'd be able to get crazier results from it. And then that was kind of the realization of, oh, all the thinking I went in that all the thinking that went into making the show better, I might be able to do for my own business. So then it focused into, well, how can I make clients look like a million bucks? And the focus is on the person who booked me looks like the best person at the company because they had the bright idea to hire Jonathan. It wasn't my job to come in and be a rock star. It's my job to make my client look like the rock star. And that changes everything. So then a couple of years go by and I start getting emails from people saying, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but you came to my college. You talked to me after the show. It blew my mind. I made a whole bunch of different choices. And now here's what my life is. And it's all thanks to you spending 10 minutes with me. And that's when I realized like, oh, okay, maybe all this stuff has more value beyond the show or designing a performance it also has to do with a business and your life oh, okay if i can help people think about their situation differently it opens up new opportunities and and possibilities and that's really what we want is more choice from our situation so if you can tell yourself different stories about what your past means then you've opened up new choices of what to do about it. Right. So that's, that's why that motto came through, which is change your mind, change your life. It, it really is true. It's mostly that people don't know their own mind. We're really bad at self-diagnosis, like physician heal thyself. They're like, I'm a mind reader and I'm the one locked into, well, I'm, a, I'm just a performer. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So, yeah, that that was kind of the the twist of the whole trajectory was going from I'm a performer and an entertainer that helps people forget their problems for an hour. But if I share some of the principles I'm using on stage to make the mind reading stuff work, then I can help give people the tools to solve their problems permanently and level up to more interesting problems. And that is more valuable to more people, including corporations and international companies. That's such a gem of a statement right there. I think 
the most successful people I've ever met in my life are constantly looking for better problems. And the most least, the least successful people I know are constantly either complaining about the problems they have or trying to fight the problems they have, resisting the problems they have. And so they're putting all their energy into pushing back against the problem. When in reality, you could just choose a new problem. <laughs> yep. And and really that ability to elevate your thinking and think about the the whole situation through a new lens, it does change your life. It changes every aspect of your life and you're never done. You can't get to done uh, because there's going to be new limiting beliefs. I just went through this with my business this year where I realized, man, we've been so successful yet. Now I have to go through a whole nother change. All the things that got me to this point will either keep me here. Or if I want to go to this next level, I've got to change the way I think about myself, my business. And that's uncomfortable, especially when it contributed to making me successful to now. And, uh, and that can be a really uncomfortable realization for all of us that it's not just bad things. It's not just limiting beliefs that are, are sort of bad beliefs. It's good beliefs you have that worked, that got you here, that you have to be able to reimagine to go to that next step. As you're, uh, Looking at the mentalism side, one question I've always had, I've always assumed as someone who knows nothing about uh, the domain, that there is two sort of elements. There are elements that you are sort of pulling or reading, interpreting, and there are elements that you are planting or influencing, that there's sort of two things happening. And I'm curious, one, is that true or do I have that wrong? And two, when you look at that in, in the sales context, in the, in the corporate world, in your consulting business, and you're trying to apply this skill for, for really useful purposes from a business standpoint, what do you focus on more? Is there, is there more you can do for someone who doesn't have a lot of skill to influence the other person? Is there more they can do to, to read and, and get the right things out of them? How would you prioritize those? And if it's a bad question because you don't do both, you can also just tell me. But Yeah, no. It's it's more that Hollywood has made the micromuscular facial reading as a method thing very popular, and mm. it is near zero real, okay? Because the fact that your eye twitched doesn't tell me that your first pet's name was Fluffy. So there, there's no connection there. Also, it's predicated on a completely false assumption which is that there are universal displays of emotion that are always connected to the same emotion and that's a real deep terrifying idea when you start digging into it that this facial reaction does not mean anything as it stands alone so there's nobody on planet earth who can look at you for 0.2 seconds and then say you're feeling this way it's all pseudoscience that mm. sounds good. However, we human beings are good at understanding context. So what you can do is build a baseline of normal behavior through a personal connection. Then you could see deviations from that baseline. But that takes a lot of time to build that context. To answer your question, there's near zero watching people really? and planting and, and that kind of thing. There are, there are some elements, but they are at 90 degrees to what you think is going on. Hmm. The real question of, okay, the method of how you're doing it, it's a hundred percent, no matter where you grew up, I don't care. This is going to work, which hmm. is why it's so powerful because the psychological layer 
psychology and, and the research of human cognition, a lot of it is couched in cultural understanding. And then we've got the replication crisis and all that kind of stuff. But magicians have been doing the same tricks for 10,000 years, and they still work no matter where you grew up, which means that it's leveraging fundamental psychological principles and processes and systems that are pre-cultural that means it's universal to human beings. So that's why most magicians are sleeping on how powerful that is because they're so focused on the magic element of it and then they don't understand how they could leverage that understanding in a different context, being marketing, sales, negotiations, delivery, client retention, conversion rate optimization on websites. It's all the same thing from the perspective of somebody who understands the fundamentals of how humans operate with reality. It, it really is like opening up the matrix and then just being like, oh, I'm Neo. I can rewrite the rules and make reality do things that most normal people think is um, is impossible but impossible is just another day at the at the office for me it's like i literally get paid to make impossible things happen that's awesome i i've never thought about and i love that insight that you shared there of this concept of it being so cross-cultural and cross time that it's it's such a base level human thing that, that you're experiencing so I, I think that's really powerful and then when you think about sort of the tactics behind that uh, so i want to make sure i understood you because there was a lot of good insights shared there it sounds like you're saying if someone wants to start to take advantage of those types of tactics, you know, and they're not going to go become a mentalist and get to the depth that, that an expert gets to, they're going to work with you or an expert that's going to train them. The things that they're going to be able to have more of an impact on are understanding some of these frameworks that are, are very ingrained in us as humans and then channeling that to influence people much more than they are going to learn how to uncover and reveal and pull things out of people, anything on that side of it. Are there any specific challenges, setbacks, or ways that you think about dealing with difficulty, hard emotions, where it's like, this is how I was able to get to this result, because it wasn't just, I bought a magic kit, I practiced for a day, and now I'm a professional magician. There was a much more challenging journey. What are your thoughts on that, on, on dealing with those the challenges? A big part of it, I think, in my book is a lack of curiosity. Just, I don't care. I don't care enough to dig in to learn what I need to know. And it's like, you can't teach somebody to care. It's kind of like, oh, I can't teach you how to be a good person. I can't teach you to want to be a good person. You've got to go through being an awful person and how much that sucks before you realize maybe I should not be this awful person anymore. Right. So that that's kind of difficult. And one way that I see that question is through the lens of, again, learning, learning mentalism tricks and, and that kind of thing. So at the beginning, everything's hard because you're not good at it. Like my 17-month-old daughter, watching her try to sit down is incredible. Like <laughs> I had no clue you could mess up sitting down this many ways for this long. Okay, I'm going to walk up to the chair, then I'm going to turn around, but do it in like a half circle that takes me three feet away from the chair and then try to sit down. But the chair's over like things you would never dream you would do. This this little kid is going through all the permutations, right? So everything's hard at the beginning because you're not used to it. Okay, so there are kind of two paths forward. 
So imagine you want to, to do a card trick. You're like, I want to get really good at a card trick. Well, there are two paths. One is you could buy this super technologically advanced deck of cards with the latest and greatest technology in it. It's $700 and it does all the work for you. All, literally, all you have to do is put it down on the table and it does the magic trick for you. Holy cow. Well, it's expensive, but you've got immediate results. Or you could learn the sleight of hand version that's going to be much more difficult. It's going to take longer before you could ever perform that trick for your friends. But eventually you'll get really good at it. Then there's this inflection point where the easy, quick way flattens out. And then the hard way just takes off. Because now you're at a party. Somebody hands you a deck of cards that was in the, the junk drawer. And then they say, hey, do that trick you can do. Well, if you need that fancy $700 techno deck and you left it at home, well, suddenly you're not so magical. <laughs> and the easy way locks in a ceiling that you don't know about until you hit it. And by now you've invested too much time in the low skill, low effort way that you now can't go beyond it without going back to zero and then learning it now the harder way, which had you chosen the harder way to begin with, it would have felt as hard as the automatic deck did at the beginning. So it's the weird interplay of real difficulty from an empirical standpoint, the perceived difficulty based on your lack of knowledge and experience, then there's the potential utility of the path that you're choosing. And most people don't know enough about any of that to know why they shouldn't be doing the easy done for you path and why the hard sleight of hand way in the long term winds up being the easier, better way of doing it. So it's kind of then, well, what time frame are you talking about? Because if you're talking about one hour, yeah, you're going to get more results from this $700 deck than the sleight of hand. Are you talking about at a lifetime level? Then choose the hard path every single time and your life will be so much easier. So part of it is that this whole world is endlessly fascinating to me. There's there's nothing that that's more interesting to me than all this stuff. So I'm willing to engage with a problem for years because I'm curious about the problem and I'm fascinated by it. And then I can take what I know and apply it across a whole bunch of different domains. So to me, it's weirdly not even hard work when I need to sit down and 13 hours have gone by and I'm still thinking about this presentational angle and this and doing that, I'm willing to work harder than anybody else because to me, the I'm more interested in the problem than anybody else on the planet. That's a powerful statement. I think, you know, this idea that the antidote to maybe laziness is much deeper curiosity. There's almost the inverse of that is almost saying that laziness is selfishness. You know, it's self-absorbedness. If you're self-absorbed and you don't care about the other person, you don't care about the problem, you don't care about the experience, then of course you're not going to feel 
satisfied or motivated to put in the time to understand everything else. If you're endlessly curious, you will. You'll unpack all of those things. And so that's a, a, a wonderful insight for the audience. And I think it's 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 key to dealing with the challenges and setbacks that come along the way. They're, accomplishing anything meaningful has guaranteed challenges, setbacks. I'm sure you've been booed off stage or had, you know, bad crowds or had horrible low moments, depressing moments. And if you are not infinitely curious, if you look at that and say, well, screw those people, they're mean. They just hate me. They're bad people. Then the next ones will be better. You've just capped. You've just hit that artificial ceiling we talked about of that's this is as good as I'm ever going to get. You're just limiting belief cemented in. But if you say, what was different about that audience? What did I do different? What did they perceive? And you really go untangle it. I'm sure your act gets better and, and you come back a better performer. So I think that's this idea of curiosity is the antidote uh, is, is something that, that I'm definitely going to really think about. Now, you said you're curious about this whole world. One of the big things in the world right now is AI. I'm, one of the things we're talking about a lot on this podcast is the way that AI is going to reshape the landscape of leverage. A lot of things that used to be high leverage will become low leverage uh, or will be replaced by new forms of leverage with AI. Is there anything in that space that impacts the areas you work, whether it's on the, the consulting side or on the performing side? Anything on AI that fascinates you and that you're, you're spending time on right now? So a craftsman never blames their tools. A pro performer never blames their audience. They're always mm -hmm. taking accept, accepting responsibility for improving their kind of thing, right? Then I look at AI like a tool. It's a tool. That's what it is. And it is a phenomenal tool. It's one that we haven't ever had access to. And it's difficult to know what the implications are going to be. But what's neat is that magicians have always been first to the party for any new technology. The first special effects guru from movies, Georges Millais, he was a magician. Some of the first radio geniuses were magicians. They would install radios in their house to have listening devices all over their house so that they could know what their guests were talking about. Then, when it was time to do the show in the parlor room, they knew everything everybody was talking about all night. <laughs> right? Like, that was in the late 1800s when they wow. were doing that. And just now, when you've got Wi-Fi-enabled cameras and that kind of thing, people think, oh, he's got cameras in here. Like, that's 100 years old, <laughs> that <laughs> gag. All right? So you're behind the times, right? So the tool still doesn't do the job for you. And when I was a, a kid, my parents got me a skateboard from Walmart and I couldn't do anything on it. And I blamed the tool. I was like, this skateboard sucks because it's a $20 skateboard from Walmart. Then my brother, four years older than I am, one of his friends came over and then he just absolutely destroyed it. He could do amazing tricks on it. And that's when I realized, oh, it's not the skateboard. It's me. I don't know how to do this stuff. Okay, I get it. So while AI is a phenomenal tool, most people will lack the imagination to get the most out of it. And they don't have the strategies to use it to its full effect. Because it's still an ultra early heyday. So the people who think that AI will do everything will lose 
to a creative smart person with AI as a tool at their disposal. So AI is not going to put you out of business. A real smart person with AI is going to put you out of business because they'll be able to make it do things you never dreamt possible. It's because they understand the system better than you. I think that's an important uh, takeaway. And and it's there. there is certainly a um, sort of dystopian future you can imagine where AI is so powerful and it can do everything. In that future, nothing matters. So, so if, if you get to that dystopian future, what you do is not going to matter in that case. So thinking about that as a model and using that to influence your decisions today is pretty worthless because, uh, and this is something I explain to people at our company, because we have a technology company, a lot of people very passionate about AI, we're doing things in the generative AI space. And that being said, it's, it's like, we have to at least assume that there's a world where humans and AI are interacting for some period of time. And we got to focus on how we become the most imaginative, powerful people to use it because that's a world where there's still options. And if you're going to jump straight to the limiting belief of like, Oh, it's going to replace me. And so there's nothing I can do. You've already checked out of the game. And so much of building leverage is knowing what games to play and when to play them and then playing them better than other people. And so if you're playing a game where the game is, I've already decided everything I can't do and I've put this ceiling on my, on my life and AI is coming to replace me and oh well, then you are you have mentally created, you've, you've changed your mind and changed your life in the wrong direction. Whereas if you choose to change your mind around this idea that you just shared of, I can be a partner with AI to do something amazing and hey, it's going to move fast and it will be very disruptive and there could be scary implications. But if I fill my mind with fear, I'm going to end up right there where I set my mind. If I fill my mind with hope and with vision for what it could do, I can be that person that's profiting with it. So just one more example of that motto coming back uh, around uh, in, in kind of the way that you're thinking about that. When, when we think about any recommendations you have, uh, the one area that I wanted to just ask is, is there in the space of mentalism and magic, are there, is there anyone you look up to that you think is at the pinnacle of what they do or that people, let's say someone is not very familiar with magic uh, or mentalism, obviously they should go check out your work. Is, is there anyone else that you think embodies some of the principles we've talked about today that, uh, you know, it's like asking a basketball player who their great all-time greatest five, you know, starting lineup would be. Who who would be the people that are still alive, ideally, that if I wanted to go look up some of the most impactful people that embody the things we've talked about today, who who would that list be for you? It's a short list, one person, and it's Darren Brown. He is from the UK and he is incredible. He is top of the game, best of the best. You you won't believe it, kind of thing. And he's fantastic, fantastic. And he's also written some books uh, about happiness, about finding purpose and, and those kinds of mentalism related, mentalism adjacent details. So you can read his books. Some of his full shows are on YouTube. You can watch those there. And it's just incredible. It's full of drama, which is remarkably difficult to pull off because it's kind of like, think of the name of your childhood pet. Like, gee, I wonder what he's going to do. You're like, I'm going to tell you the name of your pet. You're like, what? No way. Where did that come from? It's like, it's, it's a very clear kind of proposition of, hey, think about this. I'm going to tell you what you're thinking. Ta-da. So it can actually lack a lot of drama. But he's phenomenal at setting things up, at drawing things out, of playing with your emotions, storytelling, all that kind of stuff, putting people in bizarre situations where you're going, oh, I have no clue how I would 
how I would react if I were in that situation. One of my favorites was he asks his volunteer, the participant who's up on stage, to slap him as hard as they can because that triggers his focus so that he can do this incredible thing. And watching somebody timidly just kind of tap him and he's like, no, not even close to enough. I need I need more. And then watching the stranger go through the emotions of this other person wants me to strike them. That was hilarious and amazing to watch happen. Right? It's that kind of weird kind of, holy cow, who comes up with this kind of thing? It's like that guy, <laughs> that guy does. So that's that's the top of mentalism for you, and uh, that's so so that's the one I'm going to definitely go look up. One other question I had on this is, I know that that that's the area that you've spent more time in long term, but on the magic side, I've always been fascinated with card tricks, uh, yeah. and and specifically though, not just card tricks, but the people like now the guy from the documentary Delt, who's like uh, partially blind now or fully blind now, um, yeah, does, like card mechanics who people that are stacking decks and dealing yeah. and it looks so natural and yet they can make the cards do whatever they want essentially is what it, what it feels like. Is that yep. an area that you spent much time or that, that you've watched? Yeah. Uh, Richard Turner is Richard Turner. Name. That's who it is. Yeah. He's yep. wild. I met him in Vegas and we were out for Penn and Teller fool us and he had just crushed his thumb working out. And at the time I was like, Oh, I can't work out because my hands are too delicate. And he is arguably the world's most technologically skilled and incredible card magician he's blind he's got a black belt in karate and he just crushed his thumb working out and he was laughing about it i was like all right i got no excuse i gotta start working out <laughs> so yeah that was that was fantastic i i bizarrely love card tricks too card magic i, I love it i will in public behave like i don't have that fascination as a way to undersell my skill hmm. so what is it you always want to hide your power level you never mm -hmm. you never want to tell somebody how powerful you are so i've gone to great lengths to practice handling cards like a person who doesn't know how to handle cards mm -hmm. so it's like the the picasso idea of i learned to paint when i was a kid but it's taken me a lifetime to forget that and to paint like a child yeah right so my approach is zero display of skill so that you don't see anything and the entire focus is on the experience and the effect. What's neat is that basically every single effect you could possibly be interested in, you can do with playing cards because they're, mathematically speaking, it's functionally infinite the number of ways you can arrange a deck. And, and that's not even talking about face up, face down, including other cards from other decks. Like just look into the math of how many ways a deck of cards can be arranged. And you're quickly into the realm of things that are true, but your mind can't understand. And it's yeah. not just that you don't know it yet. And then you know it, even when you do know it, you don't understand it. You can't appreciate it. Your brain just simply will not process it which that's another terrifying idea that reality, there are elements to it that you will never appreciate. Good luck. So yeah, I, I love playing cards and the card mechanics. So they're always called the card sharps, being able to do second deals, bottom deals and stacking the deck and all the kind of gambler stuff. 
most of the gamblers who know how to do the stuff you'll never know about. Yeah. But a magician who brags about being able to do this and learned it from a gambler, they're lying. They're no. So most magicians who do gambler demonstrations have never been in a real game really cheating with these methods. Yeah. Because it needs to look completely different from a magic show. Yeah, it's fun. I, I think I think just the simplicity of, of a deck, the fact that it's so common, everyone's familiar with it. It's such a it's such a shared starting point, you know, to really go full circle on the whole thing. You talked about how magic was that bridge. It's a it's a shared starting point that that, that allows you even as an introvert to interact with people. I think the cards for me, that's the same way that it's like this person may have spent millions of hours throughout their whole life just you know i I don't know if millions actually i don't know if we live for millions of hours but hundreds of thousands of hours perfecting you know the skill to do all these things and yet it just looks so easy uh and and it's such a seems so trivial and yet it's like it's it's such an advanced skill set so as we go to sign off is there anything you'd like to share with the audience in terms of any of your books anything that you're currently promoting any you know ways to get in touch with you we'll put it all in the show notes as well but uh, anything you want to share with how people can reach out to you yeah, the thank you very much first for inviting me on here and to share my thoughts. It, it really is a, an honor to be able to to do that. And if you've listened this far and you're like, yeah, let, I need to find out more. Easiest place to go is iCanReadMinds.com. That's it. It'll forward you to my personal portfolio site. And I am professionally curious and I've had more time. Like I ran the numbers once. It's kind of like, all right, since I was 13 years old, had I gotten a full-time job, 40 hours a week, right? 50 weeks out of the year, run that, that time. And I've spent that time learning different things. And if you go by the 10,000 hour rule, I've had about five lifetimes worth of time to learn five things at a master level that Mm. most people never even get one crack at. Right. So I'm interested in a lot of different stuff, a lot of different areas that may not make sense at first, but it's all part of being curious about how can we leverage technology and our understanding of the human system to accomplish more in less time. So that's that's why when you invited me, I was like, yeah, let's talk about leverage. So I'm I'm in, involved in open source projects with technology and, and networking, peer-to-peer networking, peer-to-peer social media platforms and business, martial arts, all sorts of fun stuff. So go to iCanReadMinds.com, sign up for my email list. I email every weekday. You're done reading it before you even know you've opened it. So they're super short, but hyper-focused on helping people make more out of their brain power. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com, which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. 
A big thanks to Solve.Cloud who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage Salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at Solve.Cloud. That's S-O-L-V-D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.